going to finish this morning our overview of the epistle of St. Paul, finishing with the one which is probably not from St. Paul, but definitely inspired by him. He was definitely behind. I mean, the epistle to the Hebrews, and that, we will, that will conclude all our studies all along this year about St. Paul. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do to me. Remember, you prelates, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the end of the conversation, Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, and the same forever. Be not led away with various and strange doctrines, for it is best that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not prof profited those that walk in them. Since we started this general overview about the Epistle of St. Paul, the more we went in, the more we discovered how St. Paul was still teaching to us, even 2,000 years later. The 13 epistles we went through helped us to understand this universal teaching across the ages. Willingly, we left aside the epistle to the Hebrews, which, we will, which will lead our treaty to a greater conclusion. In the general introduction, you may remember we said the style was different from the other epistles, looking more like a long homily than a letter. It is, it is one of the differences, and why its study was left apart since then, and is traditionally done so when the Pauline epistles are read. Let's have a look generally on, uh, on this epistle to the Hebrew, and firstly marking the differences with the other epistles from St. Paul. At the very difference of the other epistles, the epistle to the Hebrews doesn't open with a special address or greeting or blessing. The general style is also very different with long and well-structured sentences, which is completely different of the other 13 epistles built with short and elliptic sentences. The biblical quotations are following the Septuagint and not the Hebrew text of the Bible. I just used a new word probably to you, the Septuagint. The Septuagint is referred as the Greek Old Testament or the translation of the 70, which is often abbreviated with the uh, three letters LXX which is uh, 70 in uh, Roman numbers. <coughs> this Greek Old Testament is the earliest existing Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible from the original Hebrew language. And um, in the Babylonian Talmud, we found the following story why this translation exists. King Ptolemy once gathered 72 elders he placed them in 72 chambers, each of them in a separate one, without revealing to them why they were summoned. He entered each one's room and said, Write for me the Torah of Moses, your teacher. God put, God put it in the heart of each one to translate identically as all the other did. The Septuagint, we will refer several times in, um, in this lesson, is the Greek translation of the Bible, the Old Testament. And finally, the main, the main one, the last major difference is that the text mention only about two persons, Timothy and the Italian brethren, and they are both in the last chapter 13 of the epistle. Once we've seen this very, very, very quickly, these differences, we may ask ourselves to whom the epistle is written. 
Is it to the Hebrew truly? It seems that the title itself might have been added later, after its writing, but before the canon of the Holy Scriptures was fully established and completed. However, this title, Poebreos, as well as the numerous references from the Old Testament and the allusion to the liturgy of the temple, allow us to say that the letter was most certainly written to Christians converted from Judaism and were living in Italy, probably Rome. The reasons for such certainty are the word about the Italian brethren I just mentioned, the word egumenoi, the, the Greek term, which refers to the leaders of this community, and also the first letter of St. Clement of Rome, who echoes to the epistle. It is also most certain that the letter was not written to newly convert Christians, but to some others who, attracted to lukewarm and ascetia, could be tempted to go back to their former faith and Moses' law. Therefore, the author is trying to bring them back to their initial fervor, recalling their faith and memory about the events of the redemption, but also about their past fidelity in previous trials. Until a recent time, the epistle to the Hebrews was dated as one of the latest texts of the New Testament, mainly because it is written to long-time converts who are enduring the trial of fidelity in time. The second reason was that the doctrine expressed Test, the express doctrine, sorry, testify a long matured theology. However, we can't delay after the year 100, as it would contradict the tradition and mainly St. Clement of Rome, who quoted it in his first letter, which we know for sure being written around year 95. We can say that the letter was even written before the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 because of the references to its liturgy. The, the description of the Temple would be meaningless if it was no longer existing. Moreover, the, the letter is predicting a calamity to come which could well be the destruction of the Temple. A, da a date for writing could be therefore well be said in 63-64, especially if we accept the good opinion that the last chapter and its last greetings have been written by St. Paul himself. We don't know for certain who is the true author of the epistle. Several hypotheses were made and we will do our best to present some of them. Since the beginning, two main channels are facing each other. The first, St. Paul is the real author, and so speaks St. Clement of Alexandria. The others, who acknowledge a Pauline influence, but deny he was the only, the only true author. The second category is the most admitted today. So speaks Origen, the father of biblical studies, the father of the church, who say the author could be St. Clement of Rome or St. Luke. The great abbot Don Paul de Latz, which we already quoted in our studies, agrees in that last opinion, which seems quite true to us. Comparing the structure of his gospel and also the one of the Acts of the Apostles, we can see easily a great similarity between these two writings of the New Testament and the epistle to the Hebrews. From the 6th century until the 16th, everyone admitted that the epistle in, into the canon of the Holy Scriptures despite some slight discordance amongst the father of the church before that time. 
And the epistle was at that time said from St. Paul. And this is the reason why we've gotten the liturgy when we read the except of any except of the epistle letter of St. Of the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews. 16th century means Luther, him again. Luther started this debate about the authenticity of the letter, but fortunately was not taken seriously amongst Catholic scholars. Mid 20th century, discussion about the author went deeper using the new tools of biblical criticism. The outcome was about the one who wrote the text itself being a scribe more than the author. Generally speaking, it is not commonly admitted that the author was a disciple of St. Paul, most probably St. Luke, according to the opinion of Don Delatz, previously mentioned. So why this epistle could not be from St. Paul itself, himself? We mentioned about the style, which is very different from St. Paul's usual writing. We do not find the same display in these epistles as we found in the 13 others. An, impo an important lot of words, to be perfectly accurate, 153, are only found in the epistle to the Hebrews and not in any other text of the New Testament. We already mentioned about the quotation from the Old Testament, who are taken from the Septuagint and are introduced in a very different way. Fourth, we did not recognize the Pharisaic way of argumentation we were used with the other epistles. At the difference of the epistle to the Romans or the Galatians, explanation about the law of Christ's priesthood are seen under a worship angle less than a moral point of view. And finally, a sixth difference. Some may say that the epistle is more centered upon the ascension, but it seemed not that obvious, as setting apart the ascension from the Paschal mystery would be a nonsense. So this is a, a less serious reason. Now we've seen how this epistle to Hebrews differ from the others. Let's see what's bringing them together. How this epistle looks like the other epistles. Unfortunately, we most of the time stress the differences between the epistle to the Hebrews and the, other, and the others than their resemblance. However, we need to stop upon those as per our previous affirmation this epistle belongs for, to the Pauline text, at least in its inspiration. The second half of the letter, and especially the conclusion, looks like the other writing of St. Paul, following a very similar display. The mention of Timothy, who, as we know, was so close to the apostle, it can't be mentioned here by accident. All the doctrinal points of the epistles are the same Pauline inspiration. The difference being more in the wording and style than in the ideas themselves. Let's give a few examples. Christ is the mediator. He existed before and is creator. We found that in Hebrew chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 too. About the incarnation. Christ allowed himself to become the expiation victim. We find that in Hebrew chapter 2 and chapter 4. We also find it in the Philippians chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 4. Redemption through sufferings and death. Found in Hebrews chapter 2 and 5, Romans chapter 3, Philippians chapter 2. About the divine filiation, chapter 1 for the Hebrews and the, quite a lot of quotation Romans chapter 8, Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1, Philippians chapter, chapter 2 the old covenant has been replaced with the new one Hebrew chapter 7 and 8 
2 Corinthians chapter 3. So we, we have quite all the Pauline themes are present across. They're just expressed in a different way. Even if the author, you quote the Septuagint, he used the Holy Scriptures in the same way and meaning of the Apostle, using the triple method of the allegory, comparison, and casuistry. Moreover, and that's another thing to see the influence of St. Paul, definitely. He uses the same text and references St. Paul uses. Let's find a possible solution about the author. What differs between St. Paul and the author? St. Paul got an irregular and fighting style in writings, while the author is very calm and quiet in his sentences. St. Paul used frequent and stronger positions, while the author prefers smooth transitions. St. Paul often used his own person to justify his work. It appeared more or less in most of his epistles. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews never speaks about himself and disappears behind his work. St. Paul always defends his authority as an apostle. The author deny being an apostle, Hebrew chapter 2. St. Paul often says, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, but the author do not use such expressions, but new and original ones. When St. Paul quotes the Old Testament, he often introduces them with, it is written, which is never used in the epistle to the Hebrews. We said about the quotation, St. Paul always used the quotation from the Hebrew text, while the author used the Greek translation. St. Paul never mentioned the high priest or the theology about the priesthood, even in the pastoral epistles. And we know that the epistle to the Hebrews is the theological source for our doctrine about the priesthood. What makes them very similar? Both are very strong polemists against the law. They both insist upon the obedience of Christ as part of the redemption. They express in the same way the glory of Christ. The doctrine about the priesthood, which we just mentioned, is prepared in St. Paul's author's other writings. Several words, 65 to be, to be exact, are only found in St. Paul's and are in common with the epistle to the Hebrew. So we said there were several words we can find only in the epistle to the Hebrews. But there is a lot in common between and are found only in the lot of the 14 epistles. We mentioned already about Timothy, but this argument is so strong, we need to say it again. And finally, the last chapter itself, chapter 13, which looks like definitely St. Paul's. If the author is not St. Paul himself, however, we must say in, is, is, the author is very near to him and knows a lot about the Jewish people and traditions. Amongst various possible candidates, only three match these criteria. St. Luke, St. Barnabas, and Apollos. Some people even said the Virgin Mary wrote the epistle, which can't be. But confirm the opinion we would follow about St. Luke being, being the author. You remember that in Gospel of St. Luke, St. Luke is the only one who mentioned the childhood the childhood of Christ and who better than Our Lady could have said that to him and we can say why we can say that Virgin Mary may be the good inspiration is about the theology about the priesthood she knew her son St. Luke was a practitioner faithful disciple of St. Paul the Greek language of his gospel is very similar to one of the epistles, to the one of the epistle, sorry. The doctrine about the priesthood 
liturgy and Jerusalem can be found in both the, the gospel and the epistle to the Hebrews. The opinion that St. Luke is the, at least the writer was the one most followed before the 6th century. At the very beginning of the church, it was said most commonly that he was the author. St. Barnabas could be a possible author because he was from Levi's tribe and was a disciple of St. Paul. It's Tertullian's opinion, but against this opinion we have this uh, separation we mentioned in the first lesson. You remember that St. Barnabas and St. Paul split it, separated after the first missionary trip. So we can't see why St. Barnabas was no longer with St. Paul all along the rest of the missionary trips. The modern critics choose most of the time the third solution about Apollos, who was a, a rhetorician, disciple of St. Paul, of Jewish origin. But the same common points were said about St. Luke too. And how this name could be only released from the 16th century, because that, that's Luther ideas, without any support from the patristic age, at the difference of the two others. So to us, the option of Apollos looks very weak against St. Barnabas and, of course, St. Luke. And that's why we would prefer to follow the opinion of Don de Latte about St. Luke. However, this question about the true author remains quite secondary as it is clear enough that St. Paul's influence can't be denied from the ideas and doctrine of the epistle. This last comment upon the author is comforted by an answer from the Biblical Commission on the 24th of June 1914. Let's have a look to the structure of the epistle before deeping in the teaching itself. It seems quite difficult to give a clear layout of the epistle as it looks at succession of teachings upon bullet points in doctrine and morals. The letter looks like a long homily to which St. Paul most probably added his final touch in the concluding chapter. Following St. Thomas, we would like to read the epistle with two general ideas. Christ's primacy, Christ primacy upon the angels, upon Moses, and upon the priests of the Old Covenant. The virtue of faith unites members to the head of the, myst to the mystical body, and that is seen through the virtue of faith in itself and the works of faith. The epistle to the Hebrews looks like an anomaly upon the Exodus, or better, upon the priestly, priestly Christology, enlightened with the liturgy and the priesthood of the Old Testament. It is a long explanation upon Christ yesterday and today. We can find similarities with the other apostles in the teaching. Firstly, St. John. In his Gospel, St. John tries to comfort the faith of his, uh, of his readers, as the author of the epistle tries to strengthen or even wake up again their faith. In the same manner, St. John and the author stress their teaching with the central figure of Christ, not as the verb nor the Lord, but as, as the high priest and eunuch mediator. The faith is also put under trial through times and persecutions, but brings at the end the eternal reward of the heavenly Jerusalem. Both the Apocalypse and the Epistle conclude with this same glorious picture. But call to mind the former days wherein being illuminated you endured a great fight of afflictions and on the one hand indeed by reproaches and tribulation were made a gazing stock and on the other became companions of them that were used in such sort. For you both had compassion on, that, on them that were in hands, in bands, sorry, 
and took with joy the being stripped of your own goods, knowing that you have a better and lasting substance. Do not therefore lose your confidence, which hath a great reward, for patience is necessary for you, that doing the will of God you may receive the promise. That was the quotation from Hebrew chapter 10. And the Apocalypse, we find similar thing. He that shall lead into captivity shall go into captivity. He that shall kill by the sword must be killed by the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Christ, as he is presented in the Hebrews, looks very similar to Christ in St. John's Gospel. The first epistle and apocalypse. Christ is the innocent, unblemished victim. There is also similarities with St. Peter's first letter, especially regarding the quotation of the Old Testament and the way to urge the readers to fidelity, stressing the coming event of Perusia. And of course, similarity with St. Paul. We already said a lot about them. Let's never forget that the similarities are more important than the differences here. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Christology is presented under a new angle, which remains highly dependent of the doctrine taught in the other Pauline epistles, especially the pastoral one. The epistle to the Hebrews is a continuation of the explanation about Christ and the apostatic union of the two natures, divine and human, into the unique person of Christ. The main theme of the epistle is Christ being the high priest. The epistle to the Hebrews is the text of the New Testament about the priesthood, and especially through Jesus Christ, perfect high priest, perfect pontiff. He is the only priest of the new covenant. And we know very well this chapter 5 of the epistle as we hear it every first Thursday of the month at the Mass for the Mass of Jesus, the High Priest. With Jesus, the priest is no longer a public servant only, but becomes a mediator between God and men. His first duty is an intercession through his prayers and sacrifices. The secondary task is to teach. The secondary task to teach is immediately subordinated to this first one. That's why neither, neither doth any man take the honor to himself, but he that is called by God, as Aaron was, Christ is priest and shepherd. Jesus is priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This precision about Melchizedek adds a dignity which the priest of the Old Covenant didn't have. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, who offered the sacrifice in thanksgiving for Abraham's victory over his enemies. Therefore, Christ's priesthood sits above all the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant. His priesthood is royal, universal, holy, heavenly, eternal, one and forever. Ornated with, all these, ornated with all those attributes, the priesthood of the new covenant is above and fully replaced the one of the old covenant, which wasn't eternal, not, nor forever, nor universal, nor unique, nor immaculate, nor heavenly. This total superiority is due to the perfect charity of Christ, and his complete renouncement upon the cross, with the complete obedience to his Father. Perfect love and perfect obedience produced a perfect sacrifice once for all. This sacrifice is not done again, but only renewed through the sacrifice of the Mass. The priest of the new covenant acts in persona et virtu Christi, but not physically redo the sacrifice of the cross, which was the, accomplishment, which was the accomplishment of the redemption for all sins. The sacrifice of the Mass brings us the fruits of the unique sacrifice of the cross. 
Using the example of the liturgy of the temple, chapter 9 of the epistle made clear this intercession of Christ on behalf of mankind, once for all. The Holy Ghost signifying this, that the way into the holies was not yet made manifest, whilst the former tabernacle was yet standing, which is a parable of the time, of the time present, according to which gifts and sacrifices are offered, which can not, as to the conscience, made him perfect that serve only in meat and drinks, and divers washings and justices and the flesh laid on them until the time of correction. But Christ, being come as high priest of the good times to, of the good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hand, that is not of his creation neither by the blood of goats or the calves or but by his own blood enter once into the holies having obtained eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and of oxen and the ashes of an aether being sprinkled sanctify such as are defiled through the cleansing of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who by the Holy Ghost offered himself and spurted unto God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And therefore he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of his death, for the redemption of those transgressions which were under the former testament, that they that are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In Christ are gathered all the different gestures of the priests of the Old Covenant, intercession for men before God, offering gifts and sacrifices to God for the sin of men. The vocation is coming from God. The priest Jesus is an helper for ignorant and lost people, and we have the rite of the expiatory blood. All the three things that were five different actions, Jesus did all of them in one single action, the sacrifice of the cross. Being the mediator between God and men, practicing the holy and divine mercy towards them, Jesus is the good shepherd. The priesthood of the Old Covenant was a preparation in figure of the priesthood of Christ. With the reference to Melchizedek and to Psalm 109, Christ is declared as king and shepherd of the flock, as the king guides his people. Following the images of Moses and David, as well as the parable of the Good Shepherd and the suffering servant of Isaiah, Christ is called the great pastor of the sheep. As he offered himself on behalf of the flock, Christ walks first ahead of it, guiding all men towards eternity. Christ is altogether a new Moses, a new Joshua, a new David, but also much more than they were. The chapter 11 of the epistle offers us several figures of the Old Testament predicting the sacrifice of Christ. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, and the prophets. Abraham immolated his son, who was the token for the, for the promise. Moses is, in the meantime, the one who prefers contempt and who also instituted the rite of the Paschal Lamb. And the author continues the list of the figures we just said, finishing with the kings, prophets and martyrs who suffered. All of them are moved with one common virtue, faith in God, and confidence in, a, in the promise of a better world in the future. Those heroes of the Old Testament suffered in faith, announcing the death and resurrection of Christ, expecting their reward because of the promise that was made to them. With their heritage, less than, than a rupture, 
We need to read a continuation of perfection of their sacrifice and priesthood in Christ. Christ is the only one who gathers all these figures of Melchizedek, the king and shepherd, all the patriarchs and prophets in one unique figure of the high priest. Jesus is the priest king and the priest prophet who brings peace and reconciliation amongst men. As servant of God, he also willingly offers himself as a victim for all sins to reconcile men with God. Christ's priesthood is manifest through his sacrifice, demonstration of his perfect obedience to his eternal Father. And because of this obedience, he is the perfect mediator. This perfection of Christ's priesthood is not only due to all the figures which announced him, but is to be understood, understood as per his dignity of being the Son of God. This dignity makes him seating above all of them and also above the angels. As the priest of the old covenant where Jesus was instituted as the high priest. This institution is found in his perfect obedience to the Father's will. This obedience offers the only chance to unite the action of the sacrifice and the status as a victim. The obedience of Christ is offering both the ministry of the priesthood and the actions of the priests of the Old Testament, but also goes above them. He gathered in one unique figure all the attitudes and powers of the priests before him. As the perfect servant, Christ does not intend to show evidence of his own dignity, but introduces himself as the protector of God's promise and recapitulates in himself the three powers of king, priest, and prophet. Moses announced them as the guide, prophet, mediator, and suffering servant. Consequently, of this high priesthood of Christ, we've got a heritage to be seen in the priesthood in the church. The high dignity of the Savior assumes all functions of the priest of the old covenant. Because he loved himself, he completed this priesthood and allowed the church to benefit from it. This is the new priesthood founded upon the divine filiation of the Son, but which also links to the old tradition of Israel. The people of God is still walking towards the rest of the Sabbath. Only the Son arrived there. All the great invites of the, of the epistles show that salvation is not fully obtained for the people. They are moving and willing to have it, but still expecting. Looking how the author speaks about the priest of the old covenant, it seems obvious that a new order of priests is wanted, and so speaks the rest of the New Testament. Following the example of Christ, this new priesthood is a mediation, a service. At the difference of the Old Testament, Christ associated men he chose to his service to be placed at the head of communities and being united to him the only priest this new ministry is not coming from men but from God which makes it much superior to the old one they are at the service of God and his people guiding it and making resound for it the call to God to some the call of God to salvation. We cannot deny a very strong influence of the Old Testament in the epistles of the Hebrews. Because of several references to the Old Testament and especially to Moses and Exodus, we can, the, the author is allowed to present the constant pilgrimage of the people of God towards heaven. Christians are pilgrims who are not to lost themselves 
always aiming for heaven. For heaven. This new exodus of God's people is articulated with three main themes. Firstly, the revelation. In the Old Testament, the word of revelation is the common departure for everything. It invites the people of God to believe in God's promise. Welcoming with faith and confidence this promise, the heavenly pilgrim accepts the unknown events of his trip, following the early examples of Abraham and all the holy men in the Old Testament. They showed the way faith will get to the end and paradise. Secondly, trials. To obtain this reward, Christians must endure the trials, crucible of the faith, but also know, know and remember the knowledge of the mysteries of faith. Listen, keep in heart and memory, and then practice. But call to mind the former ways, wherein, being illuminated, you endure a great fight of afflictions, and on the one hand, indeed, by reproaches and tribulation, were made a gazing stock, and on the other became companions of them that were used in such sort. For you both had compassion on them that were in bands, and took with joy of being stripped of your own goods, knowing that you have a better and lasting substance. Do not therefore lose your confidence, which hath a great reward. For patience is necessary for you, that, doing the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little and very little while, and he that is to come will come and will not delay. But my just man, man lives by faith. But if he withdraw himself, he shall not please my soul. But we are not the children of withdrawing into perdition, but of faith to the saving of the soul. Thirdly, the victory of faith. Because faith will be the compass to keep right the walk towards paradise and the joint victory of all the faithful people of God. The call to holiness this theology allows the author to introduce the people of God as a community of worship. Seeing this pilgrimage just as a walk, it's incomplete without faith. If faith is guiding, the divine worship will, be, will open the doors of the temple. Christ is fully God and man. He endured our weakness and limitation even temptation but of course never sin that's why he is our model as the incarnate son and priest christ is above moses and the priest of the temple because he is the priest according to the order of melchizedek and not of Aaron. Aaron. if he is above them his sacrifice is above too his glory is coming from and with the cross as it brings eternal salvation to the world. Christ's priesthood is unique and forever, as is his sacrifice. All of us are invited to participate according to the part they receive until they come to the joy of the eternal kingdom. If we are called to holiness and we have to live in trials with faith, there is something we need to face all the time, our own sin. This idea is present all along the epistle, as it directly links with the redemption. It is so strong in the text that some heretics of the first centuries tried to use it, its content to say that some sins were unforgivable. <coughs> More recent scholars used this same idea to reject the epistle because they thought it being too rigid. Sin is the cause for the sacrifice of Jesus. Sin is setting us apart from God because it goes against him and his law. The redemption offers us forgiveness and satisfaction, but only 
with conditions. Let's not forget whom the author is speaking to. To some Christians who might be tempted with lukewarm and spiritual laziness. For it is impossible for those who were once illuminated, have tasted also the heavenly gift, and were made partaker of the Holy Ghost, have moreover tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, and are fallen away, to be renewed again to penance, crucifying again to themselves the Son of God, and making him a mockery. This excerpt about lapsed people is quite severe. Do we have to understand that such sins could not be forgiven? This is how some heretics took it. But can we truly think that the apostle would willingly throw into despair those who fell away from the church out of weakness? This would contradict what was said previously about the universal call to salvation through the mystery of the blood of Christ. Here, in that excerpt, the Apostle is obviously not speaking about those who abandon faith in their weakness, but strongly condemned those who, knowing everything, willingly and proudly choose to leave the shelter of salvation, saying a real and full no to the grace of the Lord. This is what we call the sin against the Spirit, and this one is not forgivable as it is dragging the sinner straight to hell as he refuses, fully knowing the forgiveness and the mercy of the Lord. Jesus wants to save all men, but unfortunately, some are refusing his help. The sinner is freely and willingly rejecting him and that's why this sin can't be forgiven and only this one since we sin we spoke about sin we need to have to rejoice a bit with um, the prior the epistle insists upon prior the prior of Christ but also the prayer of the Christians. The sacred text invites all of us to a contemplative prayer, fixing our look upon Jesus as we read at the beginning of chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly vocation, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. This contemplation of Christ will help us in following the model he offered us. It, will, it would also be our answer to the command of the Father on Monteva. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Looking at him, listening to him, here is the double invitation of the epistle for the Christians. We contemplate his glory meditating upon his sufferings. Christian prayer is centered upon Christ, who from heaven continues to intercede for us, opening always to mankind the opportunity for salvation. This mediation of Christ and his sacrifice is offering the opportunity to anyone to become himself an oblation, a victim for the love of, of the Father. Chapter 10 of the Epistle clearly indicates the Eucharistic celebration linked to the sacrifice of the cross. The baptized people are invited to unite themselves to Christ through the participation to the sacrifice in receiving the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Let's try to conclude this beautiful Epistle. The epistle to the Hebrews was probably written to ancient priests of the temple who converted to faith but found time long and were tempted to go back to their original chains looking back to their past. This is sometimes our lot too and that's why this epistle remains accurate still today.
when we feel assailed by various trouble, if we do not remain faithful, we may not find the right answer to our problems. The mediation of Christ will help us to remain focused and faithfully guided by his figure of priest and shepherd, we will find the right path in midst of trials, rocks and thorns. And we will conclude all these ten lessons about St. Paul now. With his high mystic and theological wisdom, St. Paul is the model of all theologians who, following his example, tried to explain always more the mystery of the redemption, imitating the perfect model, Jesus Christ. 